Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Lisko. And I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James. And you might remember I was here last week, but I wasn't as hot. So that's what's changed. <laughs> it's the only thing that's changed, though, yeah. really. <laughs> uh, with us today, Esther Zuckerman, back to talk with us about Baz Luhrmann's first film, uh, Strictly Ballroom. Um, Esther, when I uh, reached out to you and was like, I'd love you to come on for 1992, you gave a, a list of, of films and this was on there. Um what is it about Strictly Ballroom that, uh, you know, that made you want to revisit it? Um, you know, I hadn't, I consider myself a Boz defender. Um, I hadn't, and I knew I loved it uh, when I first saw it and I hadn't seen it in a while. So I was thinking, yeah, it'd be fun to revisit it. Um, but um, yeah, so I think that was, that was basically the thought process. I mean, it's weird how, and Emily, obviously, I very much want to hear your thoughts on this, but like, why does Boz need defending? I guess is kind of what I, what I, because I, I think he's like, he's clearly such a auteur. I hate to use that word because it's somewhat pretentious, but he is, there's no one kind of like him. And is it just because his stuff is so kind of visual and kind of, I don't, I, I genuinely don't know because his movies are really emotionally effective and, and I don't know, I get pulled into his movies, but why do you think people push back so hard on him? I, um, I have a really good friend who uh, mm. was obsessively following uh blank check, March madness. Sure. As I have never done. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and he was like, Tarkovsky's going to win. 
the the internet loves Tarkovsky. And I literally was like, I think it's going to be Park Chan-wook or Satoshi Kon. And I was correct. I just want to note I was correct. I, I thought but, it was going to be Wong Kar Wai. Just to, yeah. uh, just I thought it was going to be Bong. But I think we're all kind of in the same sphere here. <laughs> yeah, of like, yeah, like the I mean? internet's yeah. like, yeah. 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 And he was like, it's going to be Tarkovsky. And I was like, I don't think Tarkovsky is going to get past Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> and he was like, I fucking hate Baz Luhrmann. Like if he wasn't that, he wasn't that intense, but I think there is, I think it is something about his movies that is mm. very, hmm. I'm trying to think of a way to say this without implicating his critics. There is something about his movies that is very camp. That is very uh-huh. over the top in a way that I think a lot of people and most of the film critic establishment is, you know, just straight guys are, have been sort of conditioned from childhood to not mm. like, mm-hmm. and I, there is like, there is like a thing in your brain that like, flickers on and is like this is this is kind of this is not you know the sort of thing i'm supposed to like and he is also i watched this movie and i watched the first 20 minutes and was like this is great i don't know why it's a mockumentary but this is great by the end i was exhausted and like really in a good way like it but like i still was very much like by the hour mark i was like i don't know there's a lot of this (laughs) there's just a (laughs) lot going on and i think you know I think Baz kind of irons that out for me. You know, I like this movie a lot, but it's it's not one of my favorites of his. But uh, for a lot of people, I think, you know, they see something like Elvis and it just seems a little bit unintelligible. I think you have to be like, I think you have to have a little bit of like, it, he, he edits movies like he has ADHD. And like, I think that that is a thing that, you know, if you are, let's say, inclined to like Andre Tarkovsky, that might not work for you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like the maximalism of it sure. is just a huge turnoff for people. But on top of the maximalism of it, uh, it's the earnestness of it that I think is an even <laughs> bigger turnoff for people. So that like sort of combination of earnestness and over the topness um can is really if if you're not inclined to like that is really difficult like he's so right. he he's doing so much but he's also so earnest about it and anything like it is campy but it's also really heartfelt there's no sort of tongue mm-hmm. there's not really tongue in cheekness of any of his movies like there's it's it's just and i think maybe like i've argued myself into and in talking about this it's like the earnestness even more than the maximalism is like why people sort of reject it um i think yeah. him yeah. in general yeah, it's I mean, yeah, it's very it is very campy and it's very campy in a way that like even though bass himself is is from interview responses he gave around moulin Rouge seems bought to be bisexual but has not well like never like clarified that um you know there there is a there is a campiness to it that is you know uh we associate with with queer culture but also yes he's very earnest and i think i think that's what australian cinema is and i think Mm -hmm. people sometimes struggle with like i I said this on 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 twitter but i've never seen an australian film that didn't feel a little bit like being put in a paint shaker and like it's (laughs) It, it, you know, obviously there are probably very staid Australian movies, but they don't make it out of there to here. So like it's George Miller and Baz Luhrmann and people who are just constantly shaking you by the shoulders and saying, this is meaningful. Tell me this is meaningful. And uh, it is. I, uh, uh, Moulin Rouge, one of my favorite films of all time. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a Baz. I'm Peter a Baz Weir head. is sort of chill. I, I like yeah. of the Australian. He's pretty chill. Like, I feel He's... like Peter Weir is a little chiller. 
he is, but he's also like, you know, he's more, he's still, weird. there is, there is more, there's more, there's more weirdness there. There's more to him. Like, even yeah. a thing like, like master and commander, which is a pretty conventional Hollywood blockbuster is like 10% more than yeah, like most yeah. Hollywood blockbusters. But- well, I feel like, you know, obviously, you know, even more so than the, like the, the, the specific that's strictly like part, like part of Australian cinema or like that enclave that strictly ballroom comes out of, which is like these indies, like the Muriel's wedding, strictly ballroom, Priscilla queen of the desert. I sort of all think of them as the same thing. Cause they're so, the characters are so over the top and weird and they exist in worlds that like don't really seem like they exist, but maybe it's just Australia. I don't know. I've never been there before. Um, but I feel like those all like have the same sensibilities and they're all sort of like, you really have to get on their wavelength, but they're also delightful is sort and of how was, I feel. That was the thing that, so my first exposure to, to Bads, and I don't know if it was for you guys as well, but Romeo and Juliet was the first film that I saw of his. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that comes out in 94? 95 oh, no. forgive me 96 I, I think it's 90 i think it's 96 or 97 it's 96 because titanic's titanic's next year. Yeah. yeah so 96 it comes out and i'm 16 and it kind of like cracked my head open right like i was just like what is this i've never seen anything like this it was such a uh you know an exuberant exciting weird movie and I think that like I still I still vividly remember sitting in the theater and that first sort of uh fight gunfight at the at the gas station and like all that crazy like ramped up camera and like people are spinning around and it's all like and I was just like what is this it felt so original to me and I do wonder if part of it is also that like part of it is and you I think mentioned this Emily a little bit when we were talking about this in the previous episode but like he does seem a little ahead of the game too. Like I think that a lot of his movies have aged well because of him just being a little bit just crazier, taking bigger swings than a lot of filmmakers would. And I would also say too, like as is the case with any overtly stylish filmmaker, they're immediately tagged with the style over substance thing, which I feel is I get it, but I also feel like all of Baz's movies feel like kind of fairy tales or sort of parables and less sort of like, and that doesn't make them any less rich, but I think that that's another thing that people tag him with. He's doing the James Cameron thing where he's telling extremely elemental stories. And like, you know, if you look at the screenplays of his movies, they're kind of clunky, but like he's telling them with a visual style and a, uh, an eye toward filmmaking craft that makes these sort of elemental stories feel, you know, incredibly mythological and like legendary. And like, I strictly ballroom is, is not that yet, but he's, you can see where he's trying to do it. And Romeo and Juliet, he really perfects it. Uh, and that and Moulin Rouge are my favorites of his films. And since then he's been making some fun stuff and I usually <laughs> like it, but also there's Australia and you know what? <laughs> Don't worry, we're getting a longer version of Australia on Hulu at some point. What if that's good? What if I watch I that and I'm like, it? finally, he solved it. I get it now. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I support the, I liked the great Gatsby. I liked his Gatsby. That's I, my you know, argument. it's funny. I didn't when it came out and then I rewatched it, I want to say like about six months ago. And I was like, wait, is this movie good. great? Yeah, yeah. Like I kind of got on its wavelength 
you know, after the fact. And I would say the same thing kind of about Elvis, which is in the theater, I was like, this is fine. And then I watched it again for, for our Patreon. And I was like, I think this movie kind of rules. Like, I don't know. I, I think that like. I like Elvis. I think like Elvis. I, I like, I, you know, I really liked it in the theater, actually. And then I watched it at home um with my boyfriend because uh, he hadn't seen it and he was very much like into the beginning and then as it got into the more biopicy stuff at the end fell off and i i'd say like at home i may have might have lost a little bit of interest but i also was like i think we had COVID at the time so who's to say <laughs> um <laughs> or we're coming off of COVID. Sure, it, was, sure. it was definitely related to that um but I don't know. I think like my first experience with Boz was um, Moulin Rouge and that came out because um, that came out when, well, that's 2001, June, right? June, 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was like 10, 11. Um, and I, uh, you know, it, like obviously there's something there's, you're like, when you're that age, like there's something a little scandalous about it. Like everyone's singing um, Lady Marmalade and being like, and I, I remember distinctly being scolded by like, oh. a, like an adult, not, not not like my parents, but like some adult who I was like, and somebody's like, do you know what that means? And I was like, honestly, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, but like, I think when that movie came out, it's just like, you know, it's so, because it does feel, you know, when you're a kid, it feels, it's sort of what Emily was saying, like, it feels so, you know, Big, the emotions are so big and feel so elemental and it's so shiny that it's like really sort of draws you in and then you know later you can sort of appreciate the filmmaking craft and how honestly hard that is to do mm-hmm. well that's i mean the thing that i was struck with watching strictly ballroom was <laughs> honestly how surprisingly mellow it was now i know that that just in comparison to what he has evolved into as a filmmaker and budgetarily speaking, you could tell, you know, certainly in that last, you know, 20 minutes where like, you know, Mm -hmm. the big kind of dance off situation where he's really able to do what he really wants to do, which is tons of slow-mo and tons of sequins and like everything's just like, it's just him going full tilt. Um, I was sort of really hit with um, how, earnest and lovely it was in just a very like the the love story between scott and fran really worked for me um i thought the parents story really worked the father just honestly made me cry a couple times like i'm just like there's something very kind of because his movies have evolved into something so larger than life and so huge and expensive and and you know visual i think that he's gotten away from some of the really kind of like beating heart emotion groundedness that exists in this film. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think you kind of have to watch his films a couple times now to get there as opposed to this, which on its face feels so sort of unabashedly a love story. Don't I, you? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Esther. Don't you also feel though that it's like sort of a, like, like a, thesis statement for his entire career though absolutely like even just like in the text of it like it's like i want to do the flashy steps you know yes it's like yeah that's like boss like i want to do the flashy steps i don't want to play by the rules i want to like twirl around 
Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the theme of this movie is like, be bold, be yourself, don't yeah. conform. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's so, yeah. I think the thing he figures out from this movie is this movie keeps getting crazier. And like, mm-hmm. I think that's why I was exhausted by the end. And what he figures out, like, like the famous thing about Moulin Rouge is like the first 20 minutes, if you don't lock into those, it kind of, you're kind of just you're out, out. Yeah. Yeah. but it does get more conventional as it goes. And that's sort of what his career is. He, the first half hour or whatever is often, you know, the first half hour of Elvis is fucking kaleidoscopic. And yeah. It features Tom, yeah, it features yeah, yeah. Tom Hanks saying he's white. He's which of course. <laughs> and like. But by the end of it, you know, the last thing in that movie is just Austin Butler very earnestly recreating, you know. Yeah. And I think singing. like that's yeah. sort of what, you know, Bob, my boyfriend was turning off at. Like it was like, yeah, I'm like into the, I'm locked into the like bossiness of it. And then like yeah. by the end, I'm like, okay, it's just, you know, we're doing Elvis. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I really think that he, I mean, this film, so it, it should be said too, like this was not an easy film to make. This movie kind of barely got made on certain we'll talk about sort of the production of it but like there were exhibitors that walked out of screenings and said like that you're never going to have a career i mean i don't think this movie is that especially if you're an exhibitor and you're sitting through the first you know 45 minutes of this film i don't think it's that crazy now maybe in 92 it might have been i really don't even know but it doesn't seem like that that crazy a movie to me um, which is why I was surprised at sort of reading some of the stuff about how difficult it was to get made. But let me give just a little bit of context for the film. A top Bowerman dancer pairs with a plain left-footed local girl when his <laughs> maverick style earns him the disdain of the conventionally-minded colleagues. Uh, together, the team gives it their all and makes the dreams of the national championship title. It's a very strange synopsis that I did not write from Google. Uh, Strictly Ballroom opened on August 21st, 1992 against Unforgiven, single white female, Death Becomes Her, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. Uh, it would go on Damn. to make... Yeah. What a lineup. <laughs> what a lineup, right? <laughs> Uh, it would go on to make $12.5 million in a $3 million budget. It has 88% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 87 from audiences. Uh, it uh, obviously swept the Australian Film Awards, gaining 13 nominations, winning eight. Uh, it won uh, a bunch of BAFTAs, gaining eight nominations, winning three awards for costume design, film score, production design, excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, it also won a Golden Globe for best, or sorry, Golden Globe nomination for best picture. Uh, and uh, it also won the People's Choice Award at the 1992 Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the film three stars, which is strange because his review was not particularly positive. Uh, he said that the plot of Strictly Ballroom is as old as the hills, but the characters in the movie seem to come from another planet. Surely nobody in Australia dresses like this, talks like this, or takes ballroom dancing as seriously as this. The true weirdness of this movie comes when it begins, when you begin to realize that the director didn't make everything up. Uh, only real life could possibly have been inspiring uh, a world this bizarre. Uh, what's best about the movie is its sense of madness and mania running just beneath its surface in one sense the characters care about nothing but ballroom dancing. They eat, drink, and sleep it and talk of nothing else. Their costumes alone are a tip-off that they've had no contact with the real world for years. <laughs> Yet in another sense, ballroom dancing is simply the strategy they use to hold on to hold the world at bay. They are profoundly frightened of change and have created an insular little world with rigid rules and traditions. Uh, here they can be controlled as the larger world goes haywire. You know, I was interested in looking at Ebert's review of this and then Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. He really hated Romeo and Juliet, um, but he loved Moulin Rouge. 
lot, a lot of people hated Romeo and Juliet at yeah. the time. Like, I think a lot of, I think it's like, I, I'm always fascinated when a movie from Australia or a movie from the Coen brothers set in the Midwest opens in the U S and <laughs> critics, especially coastal critics are always sort of like, so we haven't been paying attention to these people. Have yeah. they lost their minds? Is that what's happening right now? Have have we broken them? You yeah. Know? And it's like, it is, it is like, it is a little condescending to be like, well, I'm sure nobody's ever been like this. <laughs> like, but it gosh, is how funny. Much time have you spent in Australia? Go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, it is funny because it's like, I do think of this, as I said before, as such a part of Ariel's wedding and yes, yes, Priscilla yes. and like these movies that came out of Australia at this time that are very much like sort of of the same vein that have these really over the top characters. And it's like, yeah, this just feels like an sensibility that you weren't like, aware of necessarily like maybe it like I, I'm sure it's heightened to a certain extent but you know it, it is a sensibility of a country that you know those two movies came out like two years later um but yeah there's clearly a sensibility there that you're just like not aware of or not tapping into not you uh, <laughs> Emily I mean like yeah, you like I guess Roger Ebert I don't know I'm re- I'm yeah. reading I'm reading the Australian uh, best film winners from their awards okay. and it's just like there's just yeah. all bangers I want to just watch every single one of these movies but that's I mean part of it too is obviously you know America is very insulated there's not a ton of it you know things break through and when they break through here everyone's like what what this exists there's a place like this where people talk like this and do I mean. And it is sort of unfortunate, but at the same time, I do feel like Australia has had a pretty booming film industry and not just the stuff that shoots there, but like they have a fair amount of filmmakers that do amazing things down there. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about, um, so Canada, famously Canadian Mm. film and TV is often compared to like, um, to, well, I just like, this is the thing I've heard from a lot of Canadian filmmakers, not including you, Phil, you've never told me this, that it's like trapped, it's trapped between a British sort of model and an American model. And what's interesting about Canadian film is how it melds those. Everyone's sort of Australian film is like, obviously I'm not a scholar in this, but it's very much like a, a British filmmaking that's been left out in the sun too long. Like it's just like a little bit curdled and like, that's what's exciting it's about very it. very hot but, down there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I have I this I mean is I've total, never been to Australia. I don't want to like judge. But. This is a total tangent, but I fucking yeah. love Australian Christmas songs cuz they're all about how hot it is and you're like, "Well, it's, it's, it's great." But it also it when it's when it's Christmas there, it's summer and that's wrong and that's why we should destroy it, the southern hemisphere. So. Yeah. But I I do think you're making a, an interesting point about sort of the the Australian sensibility versus a british sensibility and then on top of everything you have sort of a new zealand sensibility which is its own thing as well but also feels like a kind of a bit of a spin on australian stuff like it's hard not to think of like i i don't think that peter jackson and baz Luhrmann are all that drastically far apart in terms of tone sometimes you know what i mean like i think that there's and we have a peter jackson film in 92 we have dead alive to talk about at some point emily so we have uh that to look forward to but it 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 is very interesting how baz's career i mean he's only made six movies which is also kind of crazy like he actually because i think his movies are quite hard to get made he's also had a bunch of sort of 
projects that have not come to fruition. You know, notoriously, he had uh, Alexander the Great movie that he was going to make with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Nicole Kidman that was beaten essentially to the screen by Oliver Stone's uh, Alexander. And then he had a Napoleon movie that he was trying to get made for a while. I, I what think- the fuck is it about Napoleon? Everybody wants to make a fucking Napoleon movie. And well, you know what, what? The one is coming out this year. It's happening. The, the release, the it release is finally happening. Is yeah. happening. I just think it's, you know, directors like little dictators. I don't know. Maybe that's just. Uh... <laughs> it's, 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 it's Napoleon and Pinocchio. That's all they want to do. <laughs> yeah, that's all they want to do. If we could merge these two together, it'd be the perfect film. Napoleon. <laughs> but I, but I do think that, that Baz has. Um, I imagine these are just hard movies to get up on their feet. Like they have to be to some degree movie star oriented. Um, And, and they're obviously their production budgets are incredibly expensive. And even with the production budgets being expensive as they are, my God, does the man use a lot of green screen? (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. One of the things I love about this movie is how tactile it is, how, all the slow motion is in camera slow motion as opposed to doing in post, which always kind of looks like shit. And he does that all the time now um, because he just decides in the editing room that he wants something to be in slow motion rather than actually shooting it that way when he, you know, when they're shooting it. Um, it just, it looks so much more fluid and it looks just really beautiful in this movie. I just really love the fact that I just love how kind of small and intimate this movie is. It, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that it would rank, probably even in my top five of his films but i do think that um there's something really lovely about it um because the guy was hamstrung on budget so you're saying this is you say you wouldn't rank it in his your top his top five he has six movies so you're saying this is last place oh no i i guess but you're saying it's above it's you're saying it's above australia it's above it's it's five it's five my apologies oh i definitely put it uh, like i don't know Higher. Really? I mean, I love Romeo and Juliet. I love Moulin Rouge. I've really kind of come around on Gatsby. And I think I Elvis would, is better than this. I don't know. I don't know. I probably. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I would put. I would put this above Gatsby and Australia. I, I like okay. Gatsby. I just don't like it. I thought this was a lot of fun. I definitely thought for the first half this was going to be like one of my tops, and then you know. I yeah. mean, let me be clear. I cried several times watching this movie. Um, This movie really worked for me. I found the end surprisingly like cathartic kind of gave me goosebumps and did all the stuff it was supposed to do. Um, So I don't, I don't mean to, to, to say I didn't like this movie. I really did. I mean, this is more of a sense of, I just really like Baz Luhrmann. And I think that this is above Gatsby. And I really like Gatsby and I really like Elvis, but I might put it above both of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I could be convinced of that too. I'm like, I'm such a, like, because I've been doing um, audio fiction podcasts for so long now, I'm such a weird nerd about sound design and the Elvis mm. sound design is so bonkers good that I'm just yeah. like, you know what? This is one of the best movies ever made. And like, I'm ignoring all the rest of it. I'm just like, listen to that sound design, baby. When it lost sound design at the Oscars, I was actually kind of pissed What off. did it lose to? Top Gun, which was fine. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so they, I, the planes went boom. They did. They went zoom real loud, real fast. Zoom, boom. It was very good. Uh, Phil, I want to ask you, compare this movie to She's All That, 
which I haven't seen since high school and which I'm sure you watched for 99. And and my cousin directed, um, weirdly. Wow. Um, yeah, so there you go. Oh, right. Uh, I saw the guy. I saw Wait, the, why the are you comparing it to She's All Just because just of the makeover? Yeah, they're very, oh, they're they are similar. Yeah. 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 There's a, a pig so. thing going yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I when okay. I read I read the she's all that Wikipedia page yesterday yeah. of course and I was like the 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 director's last name is Isco do I know someone named Isco <laughs> like, wait a second um I you know the I will say the the kind of the Pygmalion you know the ugly duckling thing that that exists in this movie um I, I liked it and it, I was surprised by kind of it was a little subtle in a it's way really subtle. <laughs> It's really, really subtle. That's the sort of crazy thing about it. Like, she's so awkward at the beginning wearing the glasses and like, you know, the mother is telling her to get skincare, but then she doesn't really, like, there's no big really makeover scene. She just sort of suddenly over the course of the movie, like, gets her act together, like, and maybe like... Like, Dancing makes it possible for her to, like, move and be and be confident. I'm sorry, I could... Yeah. Yeah, like her, like suddenly her hair gets better and her skin gets better. And it's just sort of like she just has, sort of has like a natural glow up. It's not like anyone sort of comes and like does her up. She's just sort of like, oh, yeah, I figured myself out. I figured out my vibes. And now I'm like totally. less I, awkward. And you're like, okay. You know, there's there's a there's a, a an extended sort of training falling in love sequence to time after time sort of in the center of this movie um and and every time time after time comes back i'm like wow we're we're, we're still doing this huh we're still playing this song like it's it's a good like almost 10 minutes of it which is great and i don't have a problem with it um but you really see her coming into her own as she finds the confidence to be able to dance um and i and i appreciated the fact that like despite the fact that they are obviously falling in love they don't kind of hit it that hard in a weird way. Like I actually found like it was kind of a slow evolution towards them respecting each other and, and their talents. And I don't know, it worked really well for me. Even in the context of the dancing, it's really, it's not even like sort of like, like, the the montage does remind me obviously of the montage and dirty dancing a lot, but even that, like, you know, it takes longer almost for like baby and dirty dancing to become a better dancer than it takes for Fran to become like, it's sort of like, she just sort of gets it. Like, you know, and I think that's, there's something sort of nice about it that like, she was always sort of under, but like her talent is there. Like she is talented. It doesn't really, you know, it, 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 she's just sort of gets it. She gets her looks. She gets her, uh, like she gets steps. She sort of figures herself out. Like, and without having, the movie sort of like telling us like oh now she's figuring herself out i completely agree and i would also say too that the movie acknowledges the fact that like she has been dancing so like this isn't completely out of the blue there's that great little moment when um uh paul when she startles paul in the studio at the beginning and he says how long have you been there and she says two years (laughs) which which i think is great like i do think that the movie is acknowledging the fact that she has some abilities in this in this universe unlike baby who obviously doesn't yeah so like it takes a little bit of uh, a little bit more time i also so the two actors uh paul mercurio and tara maurice who play scott and fran uh paul was a ballet dancer um a, a relatively famous one in australia and this was like his first acting gig i think he's really good in this movie like i think he's actually 
um, there's a lot of kind of, and, and I, I don't know if this comes from just like, you know, perhaps a, a lack of experience, but like, it feels very genuine. It all feels like this is just kind of a version of him, I assume to some degree or another, but, um, and, and Tara is, is wonderful. I, I also thought of Muriel from, from Muriel's wedding when it came to, te- to, to Fran's character a little bit. Um, so I thought that was wonderful. I, Paul kind of gives off a little bit of a Guy Pierce vibe to me. I don't know if you guys like, bones. right. Aesthetically, he's got a little bit of that. Um, I also thought the parents, uh, Pat Thompson, who plays Shirley, who unfortunately passed away prior to the film premiering at Cannes, um, is wonderful as the mom. Um, and uh, Doug, who unfortunately, I, I can't remember what the actor's name is, who plays Doug. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Um, Doug is uh, played by, where is, uh, Barry Otto. Um is wonderful. I just, the glasses making his eyes all big and glassy are just, it does, you know, wonders. Um, so I, for, on a production level, this movie started as an original short play that Baz had done based on his own life experiences as he studied ballroom dancing as a child. Of course, Baz Luhrmann studied ballroom dancing as a child. Um, and his mother worked as a ballroom dance teacher in his teens and, and what have you. Um, so, yeah, this movie just sort of went through a weird kind of production issues. There was this guy, Ted Albert, the film is dedicated to him. He was a uh, record producer and a music publisher who um, was going to produce the film. And then he passed away shortly before filming was supposed to start. But his wife, whose name is Popsy, which is just amazing that anyone on this planet is named Popsy. Um, that's my new nickname for you, Emily. It's Australia. Australia's <laughs> fucking, we got we to gotta look into what's going on down there. <laughs> Anyway, she decided to, to to continue with the production um in in uh her husband's stay. Um and as I mentioned earlier, exhibitors didn't like the film, whatever. The film uh was accepted to the Cannes Film Festival. Um it won um it was sort of a public screening midnight in Uncertain Regard program, uh, and it was an instant hit, received a 50-minute standing ovation, uh, and it won the uh I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, but the pre Genet uh, award, Jeunesse award. There's, Sorry. Yeah. There's always this standing ovation thing at Cannes. And I'm yes. sure this has been answered. Is there a guy in the back of the theater who hits like a stopwatch when they start? Or does, is it just a thing where the standing ovation ends and somebody asks, how long was that? I don't know, like 15 minutes. Uh, like 11 minutes, 15 minutes. I, I, I often wonder I'm going that. for the first time this year. So maybe I'll let well, you know. That's going to be super fun. See if you can interview the stopwatch guy. Just be yeah, like, I'll that, see that, if that should be one. the story. I think yeah. it's pro. Yeah. I think it's probably some like journalist. Do you know <laughs> what like, movies you're seeing already or no? I mean, there's 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 the lineup so like i'll definitely see like that's the of the flower moon um, that's i mean that's gonna be rad that's gonna be awesome i heard that's 17 hours long so good luck. yeah it's yeah. 17 yeah. hours long <laughs> Yeah. Um, two little things that I loved about the production that I wanted to mention. Fran's house was a set built on an existing railway station. And the most expensive shot in the entire film was they had to hire a train to pass the house twice. <laughs> which I think is just amazing. Uh, and the most expensive costume is the jacket worn by Scott during the grand finale. Uh, it took six weeks to make. Some of the ornaments and flamenco shoes were par- imported from Spain. This feels like a time to talk about Catherine Martin for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, she's so fused into obviously what we associate with Baz Luhrmann Mm -hmm. she's his costume designer art director wife she is sort of you know 
I would argue the secret sauce to all of this in a lot of ways. It's not to suggest that Baz obviously isn't intrinsically involved in the aesthetics of his films, but like it's hard to separate those two things. And she's won an Oscar. She won an Oscar for Moulin Rouge. Am I making that up? I think she might have won for Greg Gatsby. I think she's won too. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's funny because on this one, she's credited as the costume designer. She's the production designer on yes. everything. Yes. And on this one, she's credited as the costume designer for the street costumes. But somebody named Angus Strathy is the ballroom costume designer. So that's interesting. I see. Um, she has won four Oscars for four. production design. She's won. She won both production and costume for Moulin Rouge and both production and costume for Gatsby. Mm. So Good And she didn't her. win anything for Elvis, which I thought was, you know. Yeah, I was, I mean, truthfully, I mean, the Oscars this year were fascinating in a, in a myriad of ways, but I was very surprised at the lack of love for Elvis on the below the line side of things, just because yeah, I mean, it was, but it was weird that All Quiet uh, sort of took that over. Yeah. In yeah. Some there's, ways. Still that, there's still that group in the Academy of like old guys who like sure. want to see a war movie win. And if there's a war, it's like that year that, what was it? Uh, Heartbreak Ridge. Was that what it was called? Oh, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. There's so many movies that have just like random. Yeah. But like that won a bunch of awards. And like, yeah. if you believe some of the reporting blocked La La Land from winning Best Picture. <laughs> so like, right. yeah, there's just this group that just like wants to see a fucking war movie and. Yeah, they just I love know. them. Yeah, I, it was. I was just. I went into these Oscars thinking like this is a. I I, I thought Austin Butler was going to win. Um, I thought it was going to win a bunch of you know makeup costumes that kind of stuff. And it was just I was genuinely surprised that it didn't. But yeah, you know. I really thought I really thought Butler was going to win. And then you know yeah. like yeah. I'm I'm glad Brendan Fraser has an Oscar. I'm not sure. I'm glad he has one for that movie. But we can. I move on. couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, I so. This film is the first in uh, Baz Luhrmann's Red Curtain trilogy, as he has referred to it. Um, Alf, this film and Moulin Rouge both open with literal curtains, <laughs> literal red curtains. Um, Romeo and Juliet less so. But um, I, I do think that sort of the overt theatrical acknowledgement, it's like guys get on its wavelength like it's telling you what it's doing and yet at the same time like moulin rouge hits you over the head with what it's doing multiple times and yet there are i guess there are just people that just reject that reject the notion of a movie telling you what it what it's trying to do that's the it's the earnestness of it like what i was saying before it's so earnest that i think that is maybe even more than the maximalism what people like it's big hearted um yeah. uh you know well that's think- that's the thing about moulin rouge too where it's like musicals people bursting into song like it's the most earnest thing possible i think in the u.s we highly associate this style of filmmaking with music videos and mm. uh the music video filmmakers were mostly gen x or um, younger baby boomers and that's like this this group of people who are sort of like irony poison and mm-hmm. like when they make a movie it's often like you know deeply like ref- self-referential and metatextual and like there's if there's sincerity it's buried buried very far down deep and like i feel like Baz Luhrmann seems like he should be one thing but he's sort of doing another thing i also think this movie kind of shoots itself in the foot with the mockumentary stuff yeah yeah because it it is like i enjoyed it i liked that element being there but i was very much like 
this is so theatrical, but then you have this thing that is ostensibly from like a more realist genre. Yeah. And I think it like kind of, it also sort of like, it also sort of like cuts out. Like it's sort of like, yeah. it, like it he, like it. Yeah. it drops it, which is sort of, I mean, and I get, I, I sort of get why he did it because it is the sort of like, you know, this is such a strange world. We have to sort of like, in, introduce people into it it's got that almost like you know it's almost like the christopher guest thing um you know of like hey let's introduce everyone to this like this strange little enclave but um yeah it doesn't really work as well i mean but like yeah. like to the point of like his recurring motifs like there's something when they first when he first pulls back and there's like they're on top of the roof with the coca-cola sign like it's so beautiful. And then the shot at the end of sort of that montage where they cut to the dad dancing and it is, it does feel like it exists on this little stage and it's, but it's so sort of, but it's so soaring, like, and their chemistry is so good. I don't know. I, you know, two things came to mind as you were talking. The first is, you know, to, to speak of the Coca-Cola thing, like that, that shot, a sequined Coca-Cola sign with them dancing is Mm -hmm. like, that's the moment where it's like, this is this is him in a nutshell. This is going to be yeah. everything that he does from this point on. And and I do think that the iconography, I mean, that's the thing I think that that people maybe love or don't love about Baz Luhrmann's work. But like it's his deconstruction, metatextual, you know, ideas of iconography and what we consider to be icons um, mm-hmm. and why they're icons and why these things have this lasting legacy. It's it's. I think that's really fascinating. And, and I, I, I think that um, I wish that people embrace that a little bit more about him and sort of under, and, and we're willing to sort of see, um, I honestly think like the intelligence of what he's doing. I think that there's this unfortunate kind of derision that it's all just sort of flash and no substance. And I think there's so much being done in this stuff. Can I just ask, like, who are we, like, who are we talking about? Because yes, I know these people exist, but outside of like my friends, it feels like this guy's like now increasingly people get him and are wildly celebratory I, of him. Like, for all, really? yeah, for all the fact, like, I mean, Elvis got nine Academy Award nominations, right? But Elvis win. was like. Them? But the reviews out of Cannes, for instance, I, I would just there say there were a couple of really bad ones, but like the reviews overall were really strong. You know what I, I mean? I think he's like, a they, love or hate filmmaker. I agree with you. Yeah. That people are effusive about their love and very noisy about their hate. That's sorry, Esther. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. I mean, like, I don't even. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I mean, like, like it just feels like. The, yeah, maybe I, I don't know. It, I, I do sort of agree with you, Philip, but I, like the people do exist, like who yeah, don't like do. him, yes. and it's just like. But yeah, maybe it's just like it's hard to quantify. I mean, like I don't know. Like I know you know it's just like it works, but I also know for I know there are people for whom like it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. You know, like sure, sure. they like it when it's applied to you know. Moulin Rouge because it's, you know, entirely a fanciful world. And, you know, something like Gatsby really rubs them the wrong way because he's sort of imposing his style on something that we expect we already know. Like, so I think it does. Yeah, but I don't know, man. I, I, I think <laughs> you're not, Emily, you're not obviously wrong to, to question it. I, and, and I guess the, the, my whole thing is, you know, fucking Twitter ruins everything, right? So, like, film Twitter yes. is such that you're just like, 
and and we're in our own echo chambers based on fucking algorithms too so we're just bombarded with things that we feel like oh well everyone must feel this way because my twitter feed is saying so um i think that film twitter film snobs we shall say don't particularly like baz Luhrmann. I, I i think that there are obviously exceptions to that rule but i think that purists look at his work and say like this just feels like you know fuck this essentially and then i think that you know what made me kind of think about this again was you brought this up but the the blank check uh this year they kind of on some of their patreon episodes alluded to a lot of baz backlash that they were getting from a lot of tweets and a lot of comments and what have you really i didn't so so I think that there is sort of this, like, he's just, he's polarizing and there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, but you know, it's, it's a bummer. I think, I think like, yeah, what we're, we're talking about, you know, obviously there are critics for whom he does or doesn't work, but I do feel like most film critics have sort of gotten to a place where they're like, sometimes he works and sometimes he doesn't, or mm-hmm. they're like all in. And then I think there is this vocal contingent of, you know, people on Twitter <laughs> don't like what he does and like i think they're just very loud you know no, i agree i mean i would and not to not certainly not to go on a tangent but like i think the last jedi fiasco is the exact same situation i think just a bunch of you know a handful of very noisy people right. that, that scared kathleen kennedy um so i just you know i think that that's just and now yeah now this ryan and nothing went wrong and it all worked out right? like everything, everything is great yeah. the democracy yeah, was saved yeah. yeah so i i i do think though the mockumentary thing just on, on a quick thing I agree that um, I didn't particularly need it and it's dropped understandably. So yeah, that being said, the beginning portion, there is a, a humor and a propulsion and the cross cutting to the mom's talking head and the slow motion. Like I really did find myself just being like really wrapped up in that sequence. So I don't necessarily know that I needed the mom's talking head necessarily, but it did help with the propulsion of that sequence. So I kind of, I'm willing to kind of give it a little bit of slack, but I know what you, I agree with what you guys. And it also helps with the exposition. It just drops you and gives you all the facts. Also, sorry, this is maybe a tangent, but can we just acknowledge that like the villains is 69 and I have to assume that's a joke. (laughs) I'm assuming it is. Why doesn't someone go up to him and say nice? That's a thing that should have happened. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> when they do, when they do the the director's cut, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, we're gonna have to cut that in. Yeah. I had to uh, like they, I was thinking should. about it. I was like, that's obviously a joke, right? Like that his number yeah, is sixty nine, right? Did you did you read the? There's this kid. Someone on someone was like, uh, this this kid saw the number sixty nine and laughed, and the the adult was like, why why was that funny? And they were like, sixty nine. The number is a meme, and no one knows why. <laughs> Which is the most ten year old answer to that question imaginable. It's it's fantastic. Um, so I do. I this is this isn't necessarily a tangent, but I do have, wanted to ask you guys um, favorite dance movies. Do you have a favorite dance movie? Um, Are you into dance movies? I mean, I don't even know like yeah. what that would sort of entail. Um, but you know, I I I asked just because I feel like as I was watching this film and the third act came around, my brain went to of all places, Silver Linings Playbook. Um, and yeah. and and sort of how when weaponized incorrectly the dance off doesn't work for me um but 
Dirty Dancing, definitely up there for me, for sure. I love Dirty Dancing. Um, yeah. Important Jewish American movie as well. Absolutely. I mean, I have yeah. never um, seen Dirty Dancing. Wow, Emily. I have, I have seen. So I have seen it. I've seen enough of it to like be able to tell you the plot in its entirety. You gotta watch. But then the every thing. so often, somebody will be like, "And you know, Jerry Orbach's in that movie." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so like, I'm constructing this 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 show bit by from what people tell me about it and if you told me that it's actually not about dancing at all i'd be like it sounds wrong but maybe you're right and your <laughs> you namesake like emily dancing. gilmore um kelly bishop also true you know i should <laughs> i should just sit down and watch it someday but i kind of like having um, it out there you, what i mean are you a step up fan esther i'm not a huge step. i mean i've seen step up i'm not sure. like a huge step up fan i love billy elliott um sure. i billy elliott sure. is like was huge for me um, save the last dance was that a was that a big movie for you not really um i do like center stage um that's a good, good movie yep um flash dance i've never seen flash dance it's fine i mean i don't think it's i don't think it's anything I, you can race out to see dance. yeah um yeah i black swan no, does that count does black swan count i say it does <laughs> okay I mean, good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a great dance movie. <laughs> I think that I, I, I think that dancing. So what I find fascinating, I can't particularly dance, or at least I don't feel comfortable dancing. And whenever I'm watching dancing movies, I find them so cathartic. Like there's just something so wonderful about people that can actually express themselves in this way. And I just, I don't know. I I think that. I imagine that's why they're a draw. I imagine that's why people like watching them. I don't know. I mean, there's something just so kind of similar to musicals. It's just such a earnest way of expressing yourself. I don't know. There's something I'm a, really kind of I'm lovely a about it. Big musicals girl. And like mm-hmm. musicals often have a lot of the dancing that I, I love, you know, like we're going to talk about newsies at some point and that has some Absolutely, yeah. fantastic mm-hmm. dancing. Um, but uh, no yeah, kids, I, though. Uh, no swing kids it's the next year it's next year it's too bad it's so swing close. kids i uh um I, I really liked step up 3d when i saw it in theaters okay. i don't know how it would play at home but in 3d it was pretty mm-hmm. great i mean um, magic I like mike xxl magic mike yes magic mike xxx i yeah i um i've only seen the first magic mike oh magic you mike got it I mean, I, I also dance. really loved Last Dance. Um, people, I need to, are, I, people gave Last Dance sort of a bad rap, but I really, really liked Last Dance. Um, people really kind of ragged on it. Yeah, I think it's because it's like a rom-com and not like oh, okay. a redux of XXL, which is like, I think XXL is sort of like the pinnacle um, of sure. the franchise, just in sort of pure joy. Um, and uh, Did you read that uh, Clooney is suggesting that Soderbergh do a crossover between Magic Mike and Oceans? Well, sounds good. I'd watch it. That sounds great. I would watch I, like like Magic Mike XXL has no plot. It is just it is just like 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 um set pieces, but they're so good. It's, it's a so road fun. trip and they have to find their it. like they have to find their routine and then they go to different places and their they, their truck turns over like they just Gotta keep dancing. I've seen if- the I've seen the 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 Seven Eleven scene. Yeah, I yeah. mean that's the like uh, high high um, 
high watermark of it, but yeah. the whole thing is so good. What if a man was so hot and so built that just by existing, he could make you happy? And yeah. you know what? Films need to ask that more often. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, can we talk for a second about the flashbacks in this film? So there's a sequence where Scott is told about his father and mother's backstory essentially as dancers. He didn't know that his father was a dancer. He didn't know that his father was not just a dancer, but a great dancer. And we cut away to what can only be described as like, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's super heightened. Everyone's wearing like crazy caked on makeup. The, the, the crazy primary colors. It almost looks like stop motion. It looks like a Henry Selleck movie for a second. Um, it, it's, 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 it's crazy. Like yeah. yeah. It's, it's incredible. And it was the moment for me anyway, where I really kind of was like, he just wants to do crazy things, right? Like you're just like this. And I assume that people saw that in 92 and we're just like, I don't really get this, but whatever. <laughs> because it's really visually jarring. Because, like, obviously it's, it's, it's not real in the sense that we're being relayed information. And there's kind of this heightened sense to it. But um, it's so theatrical. They're literally on a stage. They're all dancing. The dad's got this. Yeah, it's, it almost feels like a Tim Burton movie. It's bizarre. It's, it's crazy. I it's love so it. weird. Yeah. Did you, what did you think, Emily? Um, I love, I love anytime there's just a thing like that, where it's just like suddenly, like, I feel like, I don't know why I'm thinking about the movie Babe, but the movie Babe obviously doesn't have anything like this, but it is sort of similar in how like. Similar weird Australians. Yeah. Suddenly you're just in a different kind of movie and here we go. And it's a good time. Like. Yeah, I think I think I am thinking of like the the fair sequences in in mm. Babe, which yes, are yes, yes. similar. Well, and then there's like, Pig in the City, which is like just like nightmare, a masterpiece, the a masterpiece, but also like nightmarish. Um, oh well, yeah, 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 that, yeah. That movie, uh, yeah, yeah, but also it feels like it has some of the same like qualities uh, yes. as the 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 flashbacks that you're talking about, just because totally. it's like not I, of this world. <laughs> I also, for some reason, thought a lot about Tim Burton in that Mm. sequence it is very like it feels similarly structured and styled to Mm -hmm. tim burton and like it is weird to think about baz Luhrmann and tim burton as similar filmmakers but they are they're kind of on the same wavelength in like a weird way yeah i mean i think that you know tim burton's the goth version of baz Luhrmann. i mean there's there's definitely that sort of you know (laughs) uh that that element to it um I, i think that they're both though um very uh optimistic kind of filmmakers like to despite all of the tim burton kind of quote-unquote nihilism and what have you it all kind of feels like a high school goth kid right where it's just like yeah yeah. but ultimately you just really want to be loved and we all want to be loved and all that you know i mean like there's just very earnest too i mean totally totally until he just starts making movies for disney money no, totally. Um, there's a great spinning transition that I loved of Scott spinning in the basement after he realizes all the stuff about his father um, that then cuts to the dance floor. Um, and we really sort of get that moment uh, when the father explains the real story as opposed to what he's been told by our mustache twirling mm-hmm. villain. Um, <laughs> and there's a really great moment when uh, 
Scott is sort of the, the push and pull of Scott being t- his mom wants him to just dance with Liz and to just sort of do the moves, what have you. And the father's like, don't do this, you know, don't give up on your dream. And he, he screams, we lived our lives in fear that like echoes through the entire auditorium. And it, it, I was just like, I love the idea that like, there's nothing worse to Baz Luhrmann than conforming like there is nothing worse to him than the idea of living your life in a prison of what society deems as right and wrong um, which i think is just him in a nutshell everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. Which I, which I adore. Um, I, I love... Um, Scott's entrance with the gold um, yeah, and, the and on his knees spinning onto the dance floor. Like it, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I was really kind of surprised by how emotionally invested I was when we got to this part of the movie. Um, and I, yeah, go, sorry, please. Oh, I will say I was thinking though a little bit about, you know, the sort of vagueness that I don't think you could do nowadays about like learning sort of the authenticity authentic steps um and you know i don't really you know it's not really explained where her family is from and uh uh you know they're they're just spanish generally and you know i think you know that feels like you know definitely something that if strictly ballroom were made now there would have to be you know some whole explanation well you have to learn sort of the authentic steps to like do your own steps and something like this and instead like it's this weird thing where like they're teaching him how to like dance more like true to a culture. Um, But then on the other hand, the like ballroom steps are very specific. Like I feel like there'd probably be, you know, more explanation of all of that, but you sort of just like, Oh, okay, whatever. (laughs) It's called a Paso Doble. Paso Doble. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the, the, um, that they do. I, and, and I I wanted to talk about that because I do think that, um, I I don't know that I would necessarily say cultural appropriation necessarily because I don't know that that's really what Baz is doing because it's done through that fucking like you know yeah pinwheel of Baz Luhrmann so like I don't know what anything really is when it comes to that sort of stuff but I do think that um that whole sequence because there's this part of the film sort of in the middle where Scott goes to Fran's house. And Fran's father realizes that this is all about dancing. Um, and the father and the grandmother teach 
Scott how to do this dance properly, essentially. And it's clear that on some level, this type of dance has been kind of dormant inside Scott because like he's been doing these kind of moves <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. and they like finally allow it, it so to kind weird, of like yeah. to come to life um which I love and and I and I, I guess what I love is the culture clash of it you know what I mean this idea of yeah. like where Scott comes from and where Fran comes from and he, they don't hit it particularly hard isn't, which again surprising for Basler isn't the Paso Doble like a established step you can do? Yes. In ball? yes. So like it's, there is this element of like today we'd be talking about cultural appropriation, but like to some degree ballroom is just an enormous amount of cultural appropriation fused yeah. together. And we don't think about it because it's been around so long. <clears throat> yeah. I totally agree with that. I, I, I think that there's, there's just something, um, Scott clearly looks at the father and the grandmother as sort of parental figures to a certain degree because he doesn't feel like he has the support of his own parents, um, or at least that Shirley is pushing him in one very specific direction that his father is sort of, you know, kind of mute and just kind of there. Um, So I do think that there is this sort of, um, he's just thrilled to be embraced by elders that have these talents if that makes sense like i i think that um that's just really exciting to him plus on top of everything it brings him closer to fran whether he is cognizant yeah. of that or not i think that that's um a really important part of of all of this too it also just feels like um it's it's kind of crazy that so the idea of sort of the title strictly ballroom is that they're very i didn't know this but i guess ballroom dancing is very rigid in terms of what <laughs> You can and can't do, um, and I guess you can apparently get boxed out, which is the thing. I, which is amazing yeah, to be. Like, <laughs> it's like this can be like physical, like this. Like, yeah, I was I was surprised to to learn as I was sort of doing a little bit of research on this that, like, yeah, I guess dancing genres are very very rigid and specific as to what you can and can't do can and can't do um which did is you cool. never watch dancing with the stars phil yeah i didn't never did okay. i've watched like three episodes i <laughs> when i was when i was at av club was when it was at its height and we were always like should we be covering this and so like a couple times i watched it to write it up real quick for yeah. um the internet um it was back with the fucking was it bristol palin who was on it yeah, that, and became a right. sensation. That sounds right. And so like I watched it and would write it up and like nobody ever read it. So it was never like, we never decided to do it, but like, yeah, you'd watch it and they'd be like this week we're doing this step. And it's like so rigid. And like, I understand like there, there is a kind of beauty to that kind of rigidity, rigidity, but yeah, it's uh I don't know. Maybe we maybe we just need the Scott Mercurio, this or not Scott Paul Mercurio, the star of this movie, was a judge for Dancing with the Stars Australia and was canned because he was too nice. <laughs> He's also now a like Labour Party representative. Um, yes, that's in, interesting. Uh, yeah, he's Is like that, a politician yeah. now. That's yeah. that's the Liberal Party, right? Am I, I, believe so. I don't know. Center left. Yeah. It's okay. center left. Yeah, I yeah, I I was really kind of um, I guess I was just surprised that dancing could be this like not progressive. I just I don't know. I guess I'm just maybe that's just. I want to take it back two steps and be like, I just spoke with great authority about Australian politics. <laughs> yeah, I you're know. like, 
Like I've, I, were I, you right I, or were you wrong? I, well, here's the thing. I think I'm right. I'm not going to look it up. I'm just going to assume I'm right. I have, I'm in like spaces where Australian people talk about their elections. So I have a vague sense of it, but yeah, I just spoke as though, mm-hmm, yep, that's right. Yeah. This is the very, thing I follow. Very, yeah. yeah. You were like, this is happening. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny that you think dance like is not, because I feel like almost every dance movie is about like, sort of breaking free of the sort of rigidity of you know form like that is center stage that is save the last dance like you know that is the first step up it's all about you know sort of ballet is very you know there are certain forms of dance that are very strict like ballet is very strict and has its very specific rules and you know um you say it like that esther uh i'm dumb is No, but really, you're absolutely right. That is true. I mean, it's also, I mean, it is a trope of the genre, but it's also kind yeah. of, I guess I just, I I just assumed, and again, this is because I know nothing about the dance world, that like in everyday dancing, you could just do whatever you wanted, but I guess that's just really not the case. Yeah. Well, also ballroom is not everyday dancing. It's true. It's true. It no, is. if you want to go outside and dance right now, you can yeah, do you anything could just be like, you want. You know yeah. what, Emily? I might just do that. When we're done this, I might just go outside and dance. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of another, you, you know, you did jazz hands just now, Esther, uh, for our listeners. I mean, Bob Fosse is one of those, like, you know, what I associate with dance, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he was all about breaking the rules of, of you know, in terms of what you were and weren't allowed to do in, in dance. So, I mean, I think that that's part of maybe my association which is that like the greatest dancers are always the ones that break the rules so i'm just like i don't know whatever take that for what it's worth but uh at the end of the film we have this sort of the big moment when fran and scott dance together doing uh this specific dance that they were taught by her father and grandmother um and we have this sort of wackadoo uh poor you know like the 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 leader wants to stop them from dancing and you have like plugs that are like mics that are unplugged and music that's taken out and and then uh in the silence of the pa system being disconnected the father starts to clap so they have a beat and honestly it gave me like goosebumps as it was happening it's just like i just love that this dad's like finally letting his son i don't know i just it really worked for me did it, it didn't work for you emily i'm assuming uh, no I, it was fine it was fine it was fine i just am thinking about how a recurring theme in this podcast is you being like that dad's great and me being like good dads <laughs> don't exist this is unrealistic <laughs> yeah it does seem to be a, an ongoing theme i just yeah, I, it just it was a very, very sweet moment i i'm not disagreeing with yeah. you it was very sweet yeah <laughs> I think also just um, I loved the uh, Kylie, the the little sister, oh, uh, yeah. saying "Shame on you, Mrs. Leachman," as she as she unplugged the PA system. The little sort of like Greek chorus of those She's two so kids good. are very funny. Ugh. At the beginning, when uh, when the dance partner bursts in and. When the when the like the famous one, the guy who's won all the awards comes in and says that his partner was hit by a car and broke her legs or something like that, yeah. the little girl goes, That was unexpected. Like yeah. there's just there's little things like that that um obviously in future Baz films just get dialed up to eleven. But like it's in this, it's it's really cute. They're they're adorable. I mean, this movie does feature a character named Tina Sparkle. So like it's Tina it's, Sparkle. Yeah. Tina so, Sparkle. Tina Sparkle. I don't. I can't do it, but it's the it's, way they it's say. Pretty it. good, but the Tina Sparkle. 
Um, a friend of this podcast, Emma Stefanski, does really good Australian and New Zealand oh, accents. She? Yeah, she's really, really good. Well, at the it. next time we have her on, we'll have her do some. Uh, yeah, Australian, you gotta, uh, you gotta yeah. have her do an Australian or New Zealand. We film. didn't have uh, that opportunity for Cool World, unfortunately, when uh, she came on for that train wreck of a film. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's. <sighs> The other thing, too, is, and forgive me, and I'm sure that this will get me in trouble, but, like, Australian and New Zealand accents kind of blend together in my brain. I know that they're different. Well, they are different, but mm-hmm. I can't. It's also, I can't. like, yeah. the one I can never differentiate is South African. That is, like, a very okay. specific yeah. accent For that, me. like, yeah. So, Specific-y. yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I could... Yeah, I mean, I, I can't do accents at all, but I, I just, I have a hard time parsing between all of them. I but. weirdly can tell New Zealand and Australia apart, and I think it's just because I heard once Melanie Linsky say the word <laughs> X-Man. <laughs> Though I will say, I always, you know, whenever she speaks in her real voice, I'm always, like, sort of blown away. Like, I always forget. And then, like, I know, but then, you know, whenever I hear, see an interview with Melanie or, like, I've interviewed her, I'm always like, right. It's not like your American voice isn't your real voice. It's it, like well, it's the, always crazy because it her American is just so good that you're just like, yeah. and then she speaks in her, you know, obviously in her natural accent. You're like, it's also uh, Matthew Reese is another one where when yeah. he talks, you're like, oh yeah. right, you're Welsh. Like, do you think? Do you think when Peter Jackson cast Heavenly Creatures, he realized he was casting two people who were just fantastic at accents? Like actually, Kate Winslet is not from New Zealand, so she had to do that. Yeah, accent. she. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. She's. I mean, she is very good at it. Although she sometimes gets dinged for it too. People sometimes say like, I mean, I think her accent as Steve Jobs is great, but there are people that think that her accent isn't that great in that film. So I don't know. It definitely comes and goes, but I feel I view that as an intentional character choice. So like. Sure. You know, sure. yeah, I think like I think every time Kate Winslet does an accent in any way, she's doing an intentional character choice. And sometimes it's to have a bad accent. Does that make <laughs> sense? <laughs> sure. I like that. Yeah, I get it. What do you this is a question for you guys uh, as we as we wrap this up. But um, Baz Luhrmann, best performance in a Baz Luhrmann film. I'll go first while you guys are thinking about that. Cause I, I do think if I, if you put a gun to my head and said, you have to choose one, it might be Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge just because I feel like it's so rare that she gets to sort of be unabashedly like just so she looks like she's having the best time of her life. And I feel like, I don't know, it just hits all the buttons for me. And I just love her in that film, but that's just me. What what do you guys think? I'm going to pick Ewan in that movie. I think okay. Ewan McGregor, like it's, he's doing one of the hardest things in, in acting, which is everyone who watches that movie needs to fall in love with him mm. instantly. And like, I know it people works. who don't like that movie, but do like him in that movie. Like, yeah, he's, he's gorgeous and he's so good at just being winning and, and having just an open heart. Yeah. I, 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 I think I'm going to pick him. Okay. Esther? I was going to pick I, one of those two, um, but I don't want to repeat myself. Um, so uh, I don't want to repeat you. It, yeah, sorry. No, so no. I'm going to um, I'm going to just shout out. I don't know if I think it's best, but okay. Harold Perrineau in sure. um, Romeo and Juliet he's, he's is so Mercutio's son. So. I um, 
speaking of Romeo and Juliet, there is an amazing quote that I'm going to read right now um, because the actress who um, played the nurse, why am I forgetting her name? Mary. Uh, oh my God. Hold on a second. My apologies to, to everyone who's listening to this, but um, her name is um, Miriam Margolis. Thank Miriam you. Margolis. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, she had a, wrote a book um like a, a sort of just about her career and what have you where she was very frank about things in the movies that she's been in um and she said i liked dicaprio tremendously and admired his work but luckily i was immune to his groin charms unlike <laughs> claire danes then only 17 it was obvious to all of us that she was really in love with her romeo but leonardo wasn't in love with her she wasn't his type at all he didn't know how to cope with her evident infatuation he wasn't sensitive to her feelings was dismissive of her and could be quite nasty in his keenness to get away while claire was utterly sincere and so open it was painful to watch oh wow the emily st james story (laughs) (laughs) um I I want to I you know I think yes. Jim Broadbent in Moulin Rouge is so yes. fantastic. Yeah, I honestly so think good. I think Claire Danes is great, a great Juliet. I do. I I, I want to talk about Tom Hanks and Elvis because I think that performance Please. works. I think that I don't I think agree. it's one of the best. I think that performance works for the movie. I can't believe how many people are like that's a bad performance, especially when you see the real guy who's somehow like even weirder. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. I he was exactly doing a thing. I don't think it's a bad performance at all. Like, yeah, I just think it's it's, it's just like Hanks it's just also just, it is so weird to watch. I think, but I think that's intentional. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's. It's a crazy performance. It's a snow Don't get me job. wrong. It's a snow job. <laughs> it's, but I also feel like I'm getting the impression from Tom Hanks's career over the last, let's just say, like three to five years, that he's just like bored. <laughs> so he wants to do yeah, like weird doing shit. shit. He's doing weird shit. Um, like Pinocchio is a choice. There's some weird shit going on. Well, in that's that like movie. a like the a, a Robbie Z uh, fave. <laughs> Bobby Z just saying, uh, go do whatever you want to do, Tom. I I think he's great in Elvis, and I think it works because it's Tom Hanks. Like, I think that if you had almost anyone else in it, you'd be like, this doesn't work. But if it was like, I'm thinking of someone who like is more conventional in that part, like Willem Dafoe, like would have been, I think he like probably would, people would have praised him. It is literally the Tom Hanks of it. But again, I think it works because it's Hanks because you are not expecting him to do that. And that discombobulates you in a way that draws you into the rest of the movie. Like, I'm not saying we should have been nominated for an Oscar. I, I don't know that it's that level of performance, but like, yeah. I really like him in that movie. So it'll also always be uh, the movie that gave him COVID. <laughs> so the movie that gave him COVID. It oh does God. feel like it does feel like he's white is like going to outlast that movie. It's become yes. a meme in a fun way. So yeah yeah i you know the the moment when i laughed in the theater out of pure joy just for what it's worth not like laughing at the movie is it's early in the film and uh and tom hanks is sort of uh roaming around a uh an abandoned casino it seems in a nightgown in a hospital gown tottering around yeah and uh, there's a moment when Elvis says that he'll never leave his mom or abandon his mom. And Tom Hanks 
turns to camera right down the barrel of the lens says wanna bet as he's betting on a roulette wheel and you're just like i love this and then i think like isn't there like also like a a, a zoom in on the roulette wheel and you see it like and it's just like everything because it's like it almost i think the casino almost feels like a drone shot just like sort of like all around him and you're like (laughs) and then like the starship enterprise flies by at one point from outside (laughs) i I so wish that had won cinematography at the Oscars, not just yeah. because it would have been the first woman to win that award, Absolutely. but also because yeah. it's such groundbreaking work and how to create collage out of like actual yeah. images. And I know that a lot of that's editing too, but like so much of it had to be done in camera in the brain of like Mandy Walker being like, this is how this is going to match this, you know, like, no, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a beautiful looking movie. I really do. Like it's, it's. I'm, I can't I'm, wait to see what he does next, but I've come up with a grand theory of Baz Luhrmann as we're sitting oh, here talking. Tell us. Oh. I think Perfect. all Great. of his movies outside of Strictly Ballroom, mm-hmm. all of his movies are about just the immense promise and possibility and excitement that life gives you and the feeling of falling in love and the feeling of joy. Yeah. And then how death is inevitable. All of these movies like go to a place where things get slower and slower and they sort of like the life gets ground out of them and then somebody dies in grandly tragic fashion i think he's fascinated i think he's fascinated in the inevitability of death which is not a fucking thing anybody would ever say about baz Luhrmann until just now and i'm a genius but like it is all of his movies are about like all of his movies fit that template even great gatsby which i think i don't think takes liberties with the book but is adapting the book in a way you wouldn't expect Like that's what he clearly glommed onto in that material. But I also think all of his movies too are about infatuation. Like I wrote this, <laughs> yes. like I wrote about this in the sense of uh, Elvis. That like I think the, like the most exciting moment in that movie is like that first moment, and you see the girls, and you see the hysteria of their like faces and like he's no one is better at capturing that sort of that uh, that infatuation better than he is and i think that sort of feeds into your theory emily of like it's also it's so connected to death in a way like infatuation and death are sort of like one in the same thing like you you give yourself over to something so full that's i mean that's why i think his first great movie being romeo and juliet makes so much sense because that play is about the ways in which love and death are the same thing in so yeah. many ways. <clears throat> I, I also feel like, you know, he has um on uh oh my god, I'm trying to remember the the four things, the four tenets that he has, uh truth, beauty, freedom, and love, which are the four tenets of Moulin yeah. Rouge. Um which and feel like, like his... the tenets of him. <laughs> yeah, well I think I believe that's also his like production company now. Yeah. Uh, it's not Basmark. I feel like Basmark is. I feel like, or there, or maybe it's not his production company, but I feel like there's. Oh, it's on his um, logo. It's on his logo. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, like it's on his um card. Which I just feel like is such him, right? Like, and yeah, the one thing we have not talked about, guys, which I feel like we need to talk about very briefly, is uh, how to wear sunscreen. (laughs) Is Emily, you've thought? I love that. Was that was that was. My graduation year. That was the song. The graduation song. Because that was the weird time when every new every new graduation year, someone was like, we're going to make a song for this graduating class. And I was sandwiched between Time of Your Life by Green Day, which was just an accident. They did not intend that to be a graduation yeah. song. And Vitamin C's Smile, uh, or Vitamin C's rather Graduation yes. Friends Forever, which were which was Friends the most graduation song. Yeah. And I got Sunscreen, which is great. 
is amazing. It's a wonderful. It is. It's, it is insane that it was a hit. It is, well, I mean, it was because we were all sad that we were graduating, Phil. <laughs> so we all had to buy this song on a single sure. CD. So we all it's lost so, our it was, friends. It was a speech that someone gave a graduating class. No, no, no. This, this oh, is, okay, is it. It was, yeah, a, yeah, it was yeah. a newspaper opinion column. Okay. written by some random person that got turned into an email forward that was credited to Kurt Vonnegut, oh even God. though like none of this. And then Baz Luhrmann, I guess, read the email forward and was like, let's put this over a like a like beat and let's give it the title. Everybody's free to wear sunscreen, which will call back to the song. Everybody's free. I can't remember what the full title of it is from Romeo and Juliet. Um, the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, by the way, just, just great. Amazing. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. yeah the best yeah. yeah but yeah it's it's um i really did not expect you to bring up this song phil and we're gonna go another 20 minutes on it but um <laughs> you know, talk about, i mean this song i just first of all like it's crazy to call it a song because it's a it's a person and i don't it's not baz obviously but someone's just reading it right yeah and it's just got like a very kind of mid-tempo you know electronic beat behind it but it it did it 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 actually was on the it charts, charted. right? It like charted, charted, yeah. It, it hit the top ten. Live in live in New York once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in California once, but leave before it makes you soft. The Esther Zuckerman just, story. Sure, these are not things that yeah. I mean. Like, is that helpful? This is so. It's so fucking baby boomer. It's so like here are these things that I've learned as a baby boomer growing up in a generation that had un- incredible prosperity. I'm going to pass them on to you. I will say that I do like the line advice is a form of nostalgia. Um, and it's basically like if, if any of this doesn't work for you, just reject it. And like I, I like that that bit. Okay, So the, it, it is it's narrated by an Australian voice actor, Lee Perry. Um, the backing is a choral version of Everybody's Free to Feel Good, which I think is the, the song that was on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Um, yeah. It's the radio edit. It's crazy. The song is seven minutes long. It's just a guy talking in platitudes for seven minutes. I just think it's crazy. You know how, you know how like the Sopranos final season opened with that, uh, with I think it's William S. Burroughs reading his mm-hmm. thing about death. I've just always been like, somebody should do that with the sunscreen <laughs> for some show. That should just be a montage of like a bunch of the characters. You know, this is the final season. And now we're all thinking about everybody's free to wear sunscreen. And listen, now I've backed myself into a corner where I have to well, do this. Someday. Esther, did you like final this season song? of Arden? Did you like this song? Do you remember? I mean, this I, song? No, I, I, I didn't know this. Song. Have you heard I'm, this song? I, yeah, I've heard it now, but I never heard it when I was a kid. Like I somehow. It's- some, it. somehow it got past I, like it, now i've just like been aware of it as like a pop cultural right novel and it's 97 today, so you're you're seven years seven. old or something like yeah. that so yeah, it I mean, came it, so it came out in the states in 99 that's when it charted here which is all which is like i want to make clear i did not graduate in 1997 i graduated in 1999 i am that's two no, years younger that. than you just thought i was that's so. why it opens <laughs> with ladies and gentlemen the class of 1999 yeah exactly it's it's I I bring this up only to say um, in the kind of oeuvre of Baz Luhrmann, it's kind of crazy that this exists. That there's like this weird little thing that happened. Post he probably Romeo made a lot of money off it. I'm sure he did. Erroneously described as a commencement speech given by uh, Kurt Vonnegut at MIT. Listen, 
what if Kurt Vonnegut had given what is like what how would you ever attribute you remember the early internet where you could just say that a person said a fucking stupid thing and everyone would be like well yeah of course or like you know I miss obviously internet misinformation is a problem but I miss dumb email forwards I miss just like and no, then the professor Emily, no. you don't want that you don't want the parents of the world having that at their disposal I guess you are a parent. You're a parent now, so maybe you're gonna like. Do you want? Do you want to send that to your daughter when she's like all grown up? You just want to be like, by the way, did you read this? (laughs) (laughs) You miss miss subject lines that have like five forwards. I've been infected by the forward mind virus, and there's nothing that I can do to uh, to overcome it. Um, Uh, Yeah. I, 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 one, one, one last thing that is worth just asking, because I don't know if you guys have thoughts on it. The get down. Do you have thoughts on the get down? Did you watch the get down? I watched the first season and then. Well, I... there was only one season, I believe. They right? broke it in no, two halves. Oh, two there was two parts. You're right. Yeah. 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 Uh, did you? Like I, it? I sort of did. <laughs> I, I like, I don't have strong, I, I don't have strong feelings about it. Like, okay. I think. It was too, I mean, the, like, the thing is, it's like, it was too long for TV, like, for TV episodes. They went on forever. It was too sort of unwieldy. It was, but, like, there was cool stuff in it and really good performances and, you know. I, it's it's the reason I've interviewed Baz Luhrmann. Um, mm. I, I watched it and I remember really liking it. I don't remember anything about it. I remember the pilot was punishing. And it then so the long pilot. Yeah. So it long. got, it got so much better as it went on. And like, I was very much like, if there's a season two of this, I think people are really going to glom onto it. But that's when we sort of, that was when Netflix was entering its, oh, we're not going to give anything more than three seasons, period. Like that era. And it so was a canceled. tough show to make too. I mean, I have friends yeah, that were- It was very expensive. It was yeah. very expensive and very hard to to sort of contain and figure it out. It also had just like a lot of conflicting ideas going on. But it, it is it is fascinating that he made it. Um you know, I, I there was also there was a rumor when his Napoleon thing was going to become a TV show, and like Spielberg is now still trying to make uh, uh, Kubrick's Napoleon script into like a limited for HBO or something like that. I don't know. All this is to say, like, I, I bring it up only because I feel like he and I mean Baz traffics in historical movies to some degree or another, but like I would have. I would have loved to have seen his Alexander the Great film. Like that, that to me would have been a fascinating thing for him to do. Um, you know, the thing, the thing I found fascinating about Get Down is they hired a bunch of like old school TV writers. Yes. And then like, but they were Lord trying God. to make Baz Luhrmann. And it was just like, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I wish that, uh, yeah, I wish it had, had not sucked. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, like it I, didn't I suck. I loved guy. it. I just, I loved it. I don't think he's a TV guy. I loved yeah. it. it, but it was like really trying hard to cram Baz into TV. And like, again, I think he becomes exhausting and he's very smart in a film format of like figuring out ways to limit that exhaustion. I yeah. think on TV, especially the Netflix model, I do think if it was an HBO thing that aired once a week, it probably would have gone down better. But then again, vinyl didn't work at all. So who knows? Yeah, I don't, think you should, project, I don't think you should make TV. <laughs> like I, I just don't think you should make TV. It's I, he, I just think don't so think either. his style is 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 like he wants the bigger he wants a bigger sort of like physically bigger canvas and I think it's the wrong like 
bigness of the canvas, if that makes sense. Like, it's no, like I agree. The, the, I, the space is not the space that he needs. Yeah, he doesn't need more running time, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Ultimately, that's why, like, when it was announced that, you know, far away, whatever, Downs, the, the Australia four-hour miniseries yeah, no. on Hulu. And I'm just like, first of all, clearly his least beloved film. So, like, it's not the one that needs more. And I think that the idea of 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 more running time is just not what Baz needs. Bill, no. I think you should you should get him signed on to your your new project, Doctor Whiskers Origins: A Cool World Story, which, as we all know, you're pitching around town and trying to get made. You know what? Uh, <laughs> that's horrifying. The idea of Doctor Whiskers being a, a weekly or uh, yeah, no, no, we don't need. No one needs that. I, but I, I, this is all just a long way to saying that I do think that like. You know, coming back to the the Alexander the Great thing, I am interested to see when he does his, you know, historical epic or whatever that looks like. Like, you know, listen, everyone's been trying to do Cleopatra. Give Baz Luhrmann Cleopatra. I would watch Baz Luhrmann's Cleopatra yeah, fucking forever. Like that type of stuff to me, it's like give him that giant canvas and let's see what he does with something like that. I think that that would be interesting. But, he, but it, it, isn't Australia that kind of? And it's... Is it? Know, it's no. a big well, it historical, historical epic. epic. But it's, it's like really a historical epic, though. But it's... I think it needs to be like, I think what Philip's saying is like, it's more like something like that has this sort of almost fantastical, legendary yeah. aspect of it. You thing. know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know yeah, what? Just, yeah. He should just fucking make Ten Commandments. Let's just redo Ten Commandments oh, and have Baz Luhrmann do of. Baz Luhrmann's Ten Commandments would be amazing. Baz Luhrmann, <laughs> honestly. Honestly, I don't need any more Jesus movies ever. But Baz Luhrmann, if he made a Jesus movie, I'm there. Day one. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, honestly, Emily, Baz Luhrmann's Ten Commandments, when when does it start shooting? When can, when can we make that happen? Like, that's the thing. You want fantastical sorts of sandal stuff. You just yeah. got you got to do a Bible story. You got to do some sort yeah. of mythological thing. So why I not? I totally agree. Why yeah, the I fuck agree. not? Yeah, Baz, Baz Luhrmann's Hercules. Yeah. Can I um, can yes, I please. just very briefly bring up the make out makeover movie because this is yes, a makeover yes, movie yes. and like I love that trope. Um, I for some reason very have always very much responded to the story of someone realizing that there's a beautiful girl standing right in front of them and uh, that's a thing that's always spoken to me. But like a lot of people are sort of down on like how makeover movies are sexist, which they often are because it's like we took off her glasses and she was beautiful. I think this. I think we've talked about it a little bit, but I think this is a pretty good example of the form and i'm wondering what you two think makes a good makeover movie that's a good question Mm. esther i feel like maybe you i think it has like okay here's my i think the makeover has to feel like someone coming into their best self Mm. as opposed to someone being transformed for the sake of someone else and i think that's why this works so well like it's not I feel like, you know, the she's all that thing, no offense to your cousin, but um, <laughs> is like the idea with that. The problem with that is that it's like, well, she was really cute to be and she had her own little funky sense of style. And then when she sort of takes off the glasses, it's like, well, she's just as hot as she was before, but like yeah. she's, mm-hmm. but now she's, and like what makes this work so well is that, oh, please, are you okay? Um, my dog just did something weird um what you know it, as i said before it's like she 
it was all there. She doesn't really need to do anything. She just needs to like sort of get herself together. And you're like, okay, yeah, she got herself together. She found what she loves. She like brushed her hair and she looks great. Yeah, I, I fully agree with, sorry, Emily, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just, I fully agree. And I was just going to say that, you know, the, the, the example to me of doing all of that wrong, for instance, is the end of The Breakfast Club. Yeah. When, right. What they do to Ali Sheedy in that film is the exact opposite. They they remove yeah. all of the things. That make it's like her, you're not the her. same person. Yeah. Right. And and you've turned her into something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you that. And one of the reasons that I think this works so well in this film too um, is Fran seems like an actual person. She looks like yeah. an actual person. She's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But like she's not Rachel Lee Cook with glasses yeah. on. You know what I mean? Like it's it's. So, Emily, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Listen, obviously, the hottie and the naughty is the best example of this ever. No, I, I, yeah, I don't know because, like, obviously, the the, the trope speaks to me on a very deep level. It speaks to it like Cinderella is that, like, it is is yeah. one of our oldest stories. Like, we keep all cultures have a version of this story because it's a thing that we keep thinking about, and like, but yeah, it does have to be. It does have to have that extra element that makes it not just kind of creepy and male gazy and strictly no, ballroom totally. has it. Um, mm-hmm. There was a movie that came out a few years ago called The Duff that I liked oh, yeah. that I thought I thought kind of played around with that trope in an interesting way. And like, but I also think that yeah. Mae Whitman falls into that camp as well. Of you know what I mean? A a a beautiful actress, but also seems like a real person, right? Like doesn't yes. yeah. doesn't seem as though that's part of the problem. I think with a lot of these makeover situations is, and you alluded to it, Esther, obviously, but you know, if you're going to take someone who is naturally ridiculously beautiful and yeah. just kind of you know dowdy them up a little bit and then just remove, it's just you're you're not you're not fooling anyone, and it also isn't an effective arc. Yeah, and like. So, yeah. The thing about the Duff was that she discovered her own style through the process Mm. of this. Like she was not worried about styling before. And now she's like, oh, I like dressing like this. This is fun for me. This is cool and funky. Um, I'm also thinking of, but I'm, but I'm a cheerleader, which is a reverse makeout makeover movie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I was just on screen drafts um, a couple of weeks ago for an Anne Hathaway screen draft. And uh, she has a lot of those. Um, And Mm. and I think they're, I think Devil. Whereas Prada and, and Princess Diaries are both pretty good versions of it. I think Princess Diaries is, you know, it's it's a little bit, you know, whatever. She gets to be a fucking princess and it's she, awesome. She does. And it is. I'm not suggesting otherwise. I've already been attacked on Twitter for my <laughs> thoughts on Princess Diaries. But uh, but I think Devil's Prada, which is obviously about the fashion industry and is about sort of that, you know, not superficial, but, you know, certainly on the on the, yeah. on the exterior. I think they do a pretty good job. Now, again, I don't know much about fashion. I know fashion has changed a considerable well, amount since then, but, you know. I think the the thing with Devil Wears Prada is she sort of figured, she she starts to appreciate, she learns that fashion is not made in a vacuum and, like, appreciating fashion doesn't make you vapid yourself. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And so once she sort of starts dressing well, you're like, oh, she's she's also sort of learning her industry. She's honestly getting better at her job which is the thing like they make her so at the beginning so snooty about it where you're like hey you might actually excel at your job if you cared a little bit about your what this industry is and so then she does that and you're like yeah she looks great and she's like appreciating the artistry of fashion and then by the end it's like she gives some of that up but she also maintains the fact that like well she looked pretty good 
the, the idea that like Anne Hathaway is not a beautiful woman is kind of hilarious to me on a certain level because it does feel like Hollywood, at least in the beginning of her career, you know, post Princess Diaries, even up to Devil Wears Prada, it felt like there was a lot of ugly duckling stuff going on for her where she was like, and I, I just think it's kind of interesting because I, I don't. I don't know why she got tagged with that, but maybe it's just the success of Princess Diaries. Have you ever seen her breakthrough role on the TV show Get Real? I've not. No. It's uh, this is a show that I watched because it was on YouTube, and it's pretty good. It also stars Jesse Eisenberg. Like it's like it's like a show about a family, but they're kind of a kooky family, which you could get made in the late nineties. And like she, that's the role she plays she's the kind of ugly duckling sister that no one realized is beautiful and now she's starting to be beautiful and nobody still realizes it i think there is a quality inherent to anne hathaway that is just like you buy she was ugly once like even though she's always been beautiful i think it's probably because she's like smart yeah like and so hollywood's like yes hollywood's like well she she comes off as smart so you can see her being like an awkward person because she's sort of like intelligent enough. Like she comes off as intelligent enough to, you know, I think that's yeah. probably why it fits in. I also uh, think, and this might be, this actually kind of brings us full circle a little bit, but she's earnest. Yeah. And I think that earnest is something that's a little derided to some degree, right? So if you're earnest, you're needy and you're, and there's something wrong with you. And I think that that can be a tag that goes along with some of these actors as well. Yeah. Which is, you know, a little weird, but it is what it is. Um, let's rate this movie. Um, in 92, I saw this film. I didn't see this film in 92. I saw it probably in 96 after I saw Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I didn't love it back then um, just because I think uh, I was, you know, high off of Romeo and Juliet and was like, this isn't Romeo and Juliet. So I'm not as mm-hmm. into this. Um, and I'm thrilled that we got to rewatch this because I liked it so much more this time around. I probably would have given it like a 65 back in the mid nineties. I'm at like an 82 now. Like I think this movie is legitimately great. Um, and you know, as is the case with, and we've talked about this a little bit, Emily with reservoir dogs and, and, uh, and to a certain extent, Buffy the vampire slayer, but like the and first a few good men, honestly, and a few good men, the first thing out of the gate, right. That these, you know, these big writers, filmmakers mm-hmm. do often gets kind of tagged with the same with following the Chris Nolan movie of the like, Oh, it's baby. They, they're, they're still finding themselves. I don't think this movie should be tagged like that. I think this movie is legitimately great on its own. Yeah. I never really thought of it like that. Like I never really thought of this movie. I don't know. Maybe it's cause I like, I saw it at a young age before, like, like after I'd seen Moulin Rouge, but before, like, you know, I was really aware of, like, sort of director narrative, like, auteur narrative. And I always just, like, loved it. I thought it was just, like, always very sweet and beautiful Um, um, and, like, sexy, honestly. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, w- w- so what are your what are your numbers? Where do you rate this film? On a scale of hundred? Yeah, zero to ninety nine. Zero to ninety nine. Um, like eighty five. Like right. hi, okay. yeah. Emily, where are you? So for many years, I thought this was the movie Swing Kids, which came out in nineteen ninety three, and I do not like Swing Kids. I'm giving that a forty. That's just we're never going to cover it on this show. But Swing Kids gets a forty. Put that in the fucking wiki. Okay. You can just put, put it in there. Okay. Um, I'm. <laughs> 
uh, I, uh, I'm going to give this, uh, I really, I really liked it. I don't think it's up there with Baz's best for me, but I did really, I'm going to give it a 79, which is yeah, high for me. Cause I tend yeah. to, I tend to yeah. use the whole of the scale. Queer phobia. Um, oh, honestly, yeah, not that, that. Queer, not that like, they even when it feels, once. even when it feels queer phobic, it feels so with intention, which is weird. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a three. This is, this is out of 10, Esther. Yeah, so there's okay, a lot of room okay, to go okay, up. Okay, I gave okay. basic instinct. I get, uh, this is my, I gave basic instinct an eight with an enthusiastic <laughs> thumbs up. It's like, it's, yeah, it's queer phobic, but for fun. Um, so, uh, Esther, I'm curious to hear if you have thoughts on what we're covering next week. Uh, next week, we are doing The Hand That Rocks the Cradle um, with, uh, um, oh my God, I'm drawing a total blank on our Courtney guest. Howard name. And Clayton Davis. Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Um, they I, are coming on to talk. I also work on this show. I have never, I have never seen it. I you know, I've it. never seen it either. Emily, have you seen it? No, I don't even know what it's about, but I'm guessing from the title as a new mom, I'm going to have a good time. So uh, the, the weird thing about it is I always get it confused with the movie that I have seen, which is The Cradle Will Rock, which is like about uh, the depression. <laughs> but that's very different. That's very different. Very different. This is a this is a um, what if your nanny was crazy movie. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah, that's not as that's, some, yeah, as someone yeah. who's looking into hiring a nanny. Great. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to have got a lot of ideas. It is directed by Curtis Hansen. So I'm excited to talk some Curtis Hansen with this film. Um, but also, uh, it made $140 million. <laughs> it made so much money in 1992. Wow. That's like $350 million today. <laughs> anyway, uh, Hand the Rocks a Cradle. Super excited to see Rebecca De Mornay be a crazy nanny. Um, it's going to be great. That- She's going to terrorize Annabelle Scoria. Well, well, what else could you ask for? It's going to be great. Um Esther, where can people find you? Where can they read you, more importantly? Um, they can read me on the internet at large. Um, <laughs> Do you want to be more specific? Do you want to just... Well, uh... you know, you can read me at places like the New York Times and Vanity Fair. GQ uh, recently? Was GQ, that, was it, yeah, I've yeah. been doing GQ, some Bloomberg stuff. Um, you can find me on what's left of the Twitter. Um, uh, where, Twitter. What's your handle that people Easy can find Rights, um, not verified as of when we were talking on this podcast because uh, those went away. Did they finally um, take them away? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I, got, I got I rid got of mine it. by changing my name and felt so yeah. proud of myself. Yeah, but. so... <laughs> Um, easy rights. I have a website. Uh, it's the same thing on Instagram where I also post my stories. So yeah, that's, that's about it. People should read you. Your stuff is great. Everyone should be following you. Your dog's adorable. They should be following Daisy, uh, as well. Her exploits, uh, is, is Daisy named after, uh, the Great Gatsby out of curiosity? No, um, she is named after, um, a, uh, random, female hobbit um a <laughs> relative of samwise gamgee says she's half corgi and i thought corgis should be named after hobbits but she is also um she is a little girl and i didn't want to name her rosie who is like a you know more of a common hobbit female name because i knew someone with a corgi named rosie so we settled on daisy we should all be named after random hobbits guys i feel like that's yeah. a that's a thing um you know i am named after a random hobbit <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. that should be your twitter bio <laughs> i kind of like co-creator of america's eighth favorite comedy fiction podcast i don't think i'm ever gonna get rid of it even after my novel's published 
Uh, Esther, you're the best. Thank you Thank so, so you much for, for coming having to talk, me. This to was talk very fun. Us. Um, it was great to talk with you again. Hope that you'll come back in the future to talk. Yeah, you got a lot more movies films. to do. It'll be great. Um, yeah, thank you so much. It was so good to, to chat with you. Bye, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.